Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by the Delegation Game. The Delegation Game, what is that? Well, if you were paying attention the last few episodes, you'll know that we have something very, very exciting in the pipeline. It's called the Delegation Game, as I said. Jeepers, I keep on repeating myself. But aside from its handy name, it's something which you really should be excited about. If you enjoy, say, Dungeons & Dragons, fantasy football, the game Diplomacy, if you like inventing scenarios, if you like taking part in a fantasy world based in history, if you like inventing avatars and then trying to lead that avatar through certain scenarios and role-playing your way to success, cooperating with other people, stabbing them in the back, undermining people and cooperating with others, 
all the while having it narrated by yours truly, then why not check out the section of the website linked in the description below that tells you all about the delegation game and tells you all about how you can take part. For $6 a month, we'll be doing something very, very special. It could be absolute madness. It could maybe not take off at all. But I think that if it does work, we will be having one of the most unique, dynamic experiences that we've ever had in When Diplomacy Fails. Throughout the delegation game's duration, that is from January to June 2019, I'll be throwing different challenges your guys' way. And if everything goes according to plan, every week we should be having something that, well, something that isn't really being done anywhere else in a history podcast. I mean, who would have thought? Maybe there's a reason why. Maybe a fantasy football-style podcast doesn't really work in a history podcasting format. But you know what? I'm willing to try. If it doesn't work, we'll just pretend I never did, and we'll move on from there. And we will be kicking the fan-listener participation to another level of nerdiness. I really can't wait to get started. November and December are by far the best times to sign up for this. So yes, check out patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Have a look at that delegate tier, the $6 tier. If you're already interested and you want to find out more, as I said, check out the section of the website. Otherwise, guys, I hope you enjoy the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 5. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, delegates, all to the Versailles Anniversary Project, Episode 5. Last time we unwrapped what really happened when Edward House arrived in Paris on the 26th of October to hammer out an agreement on preliminary peace talks which all could accept. As we learned... House neglected to mention several setbacks, which included bowing to Britain's interpretation of the freedom of the seas, the acceptance of reparations, and the idea 
that the assembled allies would be able to interpret the 14 points as they saw fit when the time came for a peace conference. Having avoided any mention of specifics, Woodrow Wilson ensured that his vague peace plan was weighed down with qualifications and technicalities before it had even made it into the open. The core part of the vision, the 14 points, remained intact, but the truly elastic nature of each of these points ensured that everyone, from the Germans to the British, had very different ideas about what the final peace conference would look like, what they would be expected to give, or what they could expect to gain. In this episode, the full extent of Woodrow Wilson's failure is laid bare as we examine the actual terms of the armistice, which was signed on the 11th of November, 1918. The last group of episodes, so episodes 2 to 5 or so, have been building up to this moment. The armistice, as we know, didn't simply fall out of the sky. We've had to put a lot of background detail in there before we got to it. It was the outcome of several months of negotiations, culminating in that week of intensive activity in late October and early November. By the end of that week, the basis for a peace conference was apparently established with Wilson's vision at its core, but in reality, the president had lost his mandate at home to the resurgent Republican Party under Henry Cabot Lodge and the still louder Theodore Roosevelt. Shorn of his majority in Congress, Woodrow Wilson carried on nonetheless, determined to deliver his lasting peace to the world. Before the permanent final peace was made though, the war would have to be brought to an end. This was the task of those men who were developing the armistice, the team responsible for ending the war on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. Much like what had happened in the development of the Lansing Note from the 5th of November, remember the document which established the basis for negotiations at a peace conference, and which made the idea of an armistice more attractive to begin with, both Woodrow Wilson and his representative in Edward House would find themselves outmaneuvered, their vision compromised and their European colleagues prevail. Startling indeed were the differences between what Woodrow Wilson imagined the terms of the armistice to look like and what they actually looked like when the startled German delegation first laid eyes on them on the 8th of November 1918. Although we have dealt with this moment before in our very first episode, it is here that we examine it in the detail it deserves, while we also get to the bottom of why the armistice was so far from what the president wanted and who could conceivably be to blame for this disconnect between ideology and reality. Without any further ado then, let's get into it. The road to Versailles was paved by two distinct but tightly connected issues. First, the debates surrounding the nature of the peace conference, which would bring the First World War to its final conclusive end, and second, the drafting of an armistice treaty which would bring a temporary peace to Europe that would last as long as it took for the final treaty to be hammered out. For the purpose of our examination, this means that the context of the 5th of November Lansing note and the terms of the armistice depended upon one another. Why, you may be wondering, were the two so tightly connected? Well, other than the fact that protocol meant a final peace agreement could not follow unless an armistice was in place first to provide the necessary time needed to negotiate it, the interdependence of the Lansing note and the armistice terms is brought forward to us for the simple reason that Edward House compromised heavily on one to achieve his goals in the other. House's flawed ideas about how give and take worked helped pave the way for the harsh armistice terms, but errors in decoding may also have played a role. On the 30th of October, House had received a telegram from the President which underscored the importance of dealing appropriately with the Germans. The President said, 
My deliberate judgment is that our whole weight should be thrown for an armistice, which will be as moderate as possible, because lately I am certain that too much severity on the part of the Allies will make a genuine peace settlement exceedingly difficult. This statement did not contain anything unusual. Indeed, it was in line with the President's previous statements about not inflicting too great a humiliation upon the Germans. Yet, the previous sentence was undone with the sentence that followed it, which stated that The position of Hagen, Milner, and Pitan, as reported, and Pershing, is therefore subordinate to Foch. The actual spirit of this sentence effectively meant that Wilson had just contradicted himself, Rather than listen to Haig or Milner, the two British commanders, or Marshal Philippe Pétain, the French Marshal, or Pershing, the American commander, House was instructed that all were to be subordinate to Ferdinand Foch, the Supreme Allied Commander. I know there's a lot of commanders and individuals running around, but what you need to know is that Ferdinand Foch was the man arguing for the toughest line against the Germans. Thus, House's orders essentially read, be nice to the Germans, but defer to the man advocating the harshest penalties for the Germans. This bizarre mix-up in communications, and the very contradictory advice it seems to offer House, forced that man to follow what had just been said. He would defer to Foch's armistice terms. Since House's orders pretty much make no sense, it seems highly likely either that Woodrow Wilson either really wasn't paying attention to what he had written, or more likely, that American codebreakers could have made a mistake. Either way, they helped House pursue the policy which he believed was the most sensible, give the Allies what they wanted with the armistice terms, and that way they would be more agreeable to confirm the 14 points as the basis of a future peace settlement. Remember, since the Lansing note was only sent on the 5th of November, and House received these orders about the armistice on the 30th of October, we know that he had several days left to accomplish his goal and rest the commitments he required. As we also know, though, House was wrong if he believed that the Allies would give their approval to the unaltered version of Woodrow Wilson's peace plan. We know this because House was taken to task on it by David Lloyd George, who refused to let the issue of the freedom of the seas drop, and who helped to insert provisions relating to reparations which the President had never wanted to include. Before we look at precisely what those armistice terms were, we need to investigate how Edward House could have gotten it all so wrong. To begin with, one could argue that one of his major disadvantages was the President's fault. Had Woodrow Wilson provided his friend with proper detailed instructions, then the American position would have been clearer, and the extent to which she would compromise would have been known. However, Wilson did not want his vision to be mired in technicalities, nor did he wish to see its implementation delayed. It is also possible that Wilson believed it would have taken too long to work through the opposition of each leader to each of the 14 points. By keeping them vague, Wilson could declare that a certain spirit existed within them, which could serve as the basis for negotiations. The problem was, even though it was quicker to do this, the end result didn't really mean anything, since as we saw the Allies were quite happy to interpret the peace terms in several ways. But it was not all Wilson's fault. Edward House's negotiating style was also to blame. With two simultaneous and interconnected discussions taking place, one being on the preliminaries for a peace conference, the other being on the armistice terms, House seems to have believed that he could make concessions in one area for gains in the other. This belief was instilled within him when on the 30th of October, shortly after reading the President's mistranslated note, House agreed to Foch's appeal for Allied bridgeheads to be established on the Rhine, a point which Woodrow Wilson had refused to countenance in the past. Later that day, Clemenceau announced his agreement with House 
on the issue of using the 14 points as the basis for talks. From this, House seems to have internalised this lesson, or at least he made it into a lesson which he could internalise. By conceding to Foch in the military sphere for the armistice, the Allies, or at least George Clemenceau, was then more amenable to accept Wilson's vision for the projected peace conference, so it seemed at least, judging by Clemenceau's behaviour. That same day, House was assured by Ferdinand Foch that the terms of the armistice would not jeopardise the victory of the Allies. From the 30th of October then, House largely removed himself from participating in the development of the armistice terms. He had plenty on his plate after all. As the historian Klaus Schwebe wrote though, House did return to some of the discussions of the armistice terms over the next few days to give his approval for several points, which he evidently felt would compel further cooperation and increase Allied goodwill towards the President's vision. Schwebe wrote, House agreed, without argument, to not having American military men present at the armistice negotiations with the Germans. Counter to the instructions which he had received from Wilson, House accepted for the armistice at sea the military terms which had been more or less dictated by the British. And finally, House agreed to study from a sympathetic viewpoint a French proposal for the annexation of the Saar district. The permission which was granted to the Germans at the armistice talks in Compiègne to leave their troops in parts of Russia for the time being was, in his judgment, a minor issue. These concessions were troubling, but don't forget that House also believed he was acting on the President's orders. The communique of the 30th of October, after all, had instructed him to defer to Ferdinand Foch. This is surely how he reconciled his behaviour, in addition to his erroneous belief that by scratching the Allies' backs, they would scratch his when it mattered. House certainly did a lot of scratching of his own. He added the deciding vote in favour of a harsh terminology of reparations set down in Article 19 of the Armistice. As with any of the Armistice terms, those that talked of far-reaching consequences could be debated and negotiated on further in the future. This was indeed the beacon of hope which the Germans clung to once the Armistice terms were revealed to them in that train carriage. House may also have anticipated that in the final peace conference, the more severe of the terms would be modified. As a result, though, the Allies got what they wanted immediately, and House was in no position to directly challenge them. Having established what he interpreted as an understanding with the Allies, House then worked over the next few days to seal the deal. From the last episode, we know that House's success was at best only partial. On the one hand, House could correctly assert that the Allies could now no longer separate the Armistice and the 14 points, as they had hoped to do. On the other, though, the 14 points had only been accepted with several caveats. Furthermore, the American aim to preserve some measure of Germany's power was lost as well, as it was made plain that the Allies intended to subject Germany to a harsh armistice. Thus, Wilson's hopes for an armistice which to a degree would preserve a balance of power were effectively lost. It would depend upon the President to reverse this trend when he arrived in Paris for the final hammering out of the treaty. For a few days, a negative impression of the negotiations prevailed in Washington. Then, on the 5th of November, House's triumphant telegrams, echoed by his triumphant diary entries, began to arrive, and they seemed to confirm that a Wilsonian peace had been achieved, which the President would be able to add to in the near future. The whole world, House seemed to claim, had subscribed to the principles of a Wilsonian peace. They had confirmed what the President had believed, and they had vindicated his original mission. The next day, of course, the mood was a great deal less optimistic as news of the Republican victory in Congress was learned of. 
Wilson did not seem deterred, though. On the 7th of November, he said, America is the leader of liberal thought in the world, and nobody from any quarter should be allowed to interfere with or impair that leadership without giving an account of himself, which can be made very difficult. Privately, though, Wilson was understandably less confident. Even before the Republican tide had swept over his plans on the 5th of November, Wilson was confessing to his cabinet colleagues that it would take some time for the spirit of revenge to leave the Europeans. A tragically prophetic statement, as it turned out. Around the same time, Woodrow Wilson began to insist vehemently that he would have to personally participate in any talks that followed. He gave technical reasons for this, such as the problems with communication, a point which that likely faux pas over decoding that we looked at earlier seemed to justify. But Wilson also hinted at disaffection with House. The President's friend, it seemed, had not achieved enough in the armistice talks, nor had he represented Wilson's vision appropriately, compromising on it when it suited him instead. In House's defence, Wilson had little idea of the challenge which awaited him, largely because House's telegrams home were so upbeat and so triumphant. If they contained such a mood of triumph, Wilson may have wondered, where was this triumph? In many respects, though, Wilson only had himself to blame. If he wanted House to have adhered to strict terms throughout the negotiation of the armistice and the terms of the Lansing note, then he really ought to have given House clearer instructions about how far he could go. House had been wrong to interpret the Allied diplomacy in terms of give and take, but this was an understandable reaction from a man who had been sent to do a job and had to effectively make up orders from his own efforts. He did the best he could, and while he does not cast the most sympathetic profile, it was hardly all House's fault that matters transpired the way they did. Unfortunately for Woodrow Wilson, though, he now had armistice terms which he never would have approved of himself, but which his friend had signed off on. In return, House assured him the President would see that in the final peace conference, the Allies would be on side with his vision. If Wilson believed this assertion, then he was soon to receive a rude awakening. As far as the terms of the armistice were concerned, Wilson went from privately abhorring the core message of revenge, punishment and humiliation to publicly blessing them. This public about-face was due to a key event at home, the Republican victory in Congress. During the campaigning for these elections, the view had been bandied about that the President would be weak on the Germans and that only a strong Republican leadership could give the enemy what was due them. This message did seem to resonate, in spite of Wilson's best efforts, and so he now faced a situation which was far from ideal. In the days leading up to the 11th of November, when the armistice was signed, Wilson seems to have accepted that if he was to effectively lead the opposition into supporting his plan, then he would have to be willing to appear tough when the situation warranted it. The armistice thus became the ideal opportunity for Wilson to demonstrate that he had no intention of going soft on the Germans. By coming out in favour of their harsh terms, he could show that the Germans would be punished, and then implement his vision at a later date away from suspicious eyes. Of course, this had the added effect of making him look like he was flip-flopping when it suited him, and in a sense he was, but the reasons for this flip-flopping and his ability to court public opinion at least make sense, even if we don't necessarily like the fact that he did it. On the 11th of November before Congress, the historical record provides us with an apparently contradictory sight, that of Woodrow Wilson declaring his support for the punitive armistice which had just been signed by the Germans. Woodrow Wilson's speech was quite long, so we will summarise it as best as we can here. On the 11th of November before Congress, just after the armistice had been signed, Woodrow Wilson said, 
The war thus comes to an end, for, having accepted these terms of armistice, it will be impossible for the German command to renew it. The arbitrary power of the military caste of Germany, which could once secretly, and of its own single choice, disturb the peace of the world, is discredited and destroyed. And more than that, much more than that, has been accomplished. The great nations which associated themselves to destroy it have now definitely united in the common purpose to set up such a peace as will satisfy the longing of the whole world for disinterested justice, embodied in settlements which are based upon something much better and more lasting than the selfish, competitive interests of powerful states. There was no longer conjecture as to the objects the victors have in mind. They have a mind in the matter, not only, but a heart also. Their avowed and concerted purpose is to satisfy and protect the weak, as well as to accord their just rights to the strong. The humane temper and intention of the victorious governments have already been manifested in a very practical way. Their representatives in the Supreme War Council at Versailles have by unanimous resolution assured the peoples of the central empires that everything that is possible in the circumstances will be done to supply them with food and relieve the distressing want that is in so many places threatening their very lives, and steps are to be taken immediately to organise these efforts at relief in the same systematic manner that they were organised in the case of Belgium. I am confident that the nations that have learned the discipline of freedom and that have settled with self-possession to its ordered practice are now about to make conquest of the world by the sheer power of example and of friendly helpfulness. The peoples who have but just come out from under the yoke of arbitrary government and who are now coming at last into their freedom will never find the treasures of liberty they are in search of if they look for them by the light of the torch. They will find that every pathway that is stained with the blood of their own brothers leads to the wilderness, not to the seat of their hope. They are now face to face with their initial test. We must hold the light steady until they find themselves, and in the meantime, if it be possible, we must establish a peace that will justly define their place among the nations, remove all fear of their neighbours and of their former masters, and enable them to live in security and contentment when they have set their own affairs in order. I, for one, do not doubt their purpose or their capacity. There are some happy signs that they know and will choose the way of self-control and peaceful accommodation. If they do, we shall put our aid at their disposal in every way that we can. If they do not, we must await with patience and sympathy the awakening and recovery that will assuredly come at last. On the 5th of November, a Lansing note had been received in Berlin. The next day, Prince Max of Baden, the German Chancellor, wasted little time. He instructed the German Foreign Ministry to inform German newspapers that a delegation had left Berlin for the Western Front with the aim of agreeing an armistice with the Allies. Once this had been announced in the German press, the German High Command reached out to Marshal Foch, as we know, early in the hours of the 7th of November. We examined the exchange of telegrams between Foch and Hindenburg in the last episode, but one element of what we did not cover was the German eagerness for a ceasefire, while the armistice negotiations were underway, a kind of pre-armistice armistice, if you like. The first telegram sent from Hindenburg to Foch contained the additional line that The German government would be happy if, in the interest of humanity, the arrival of the German delegation at the Allies' front lines could bring about a temporary suspension of hostilities. No response was received to this request. The French indeed had no intention of ceasing hostilities when continuing the war was the best way to exert pressure on the Western Front. Undeterred, the Germans tried again. In another of his telegrams, Hindenburg added that 
to allow the German delegation to cross the two lines. An order has been given to stop firing on the front today at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, until further orders. From the German forward positions to the French forward positions, the delegation will be accompanied by road menders to enable the motor cars to use the La Capelle Road, which is destroyed. Fearing perhaps that they would be fired upon, and wishing to press pause on the conflict if at all possible, the request was nonetheless denied. The delegation of 10 Germans may have feared that the French would make a gory example of them, but this was not what happened. Instead, a ceasefire in the specific region where the Germans travelled was enforced, while the war remained fully on everywhere else. As per the communications between Foch and Hindenburg, the Germans knew that they were to meet the French at an outpost of the La Capelle Road, which cut through the Belgian border town of Chimay. A French captain, who was tasked first with defending the Chimay outpost, and who was now responsible for meeting this delegation of the enemy, recalled the following scene. Notice had reached me that an envoy might arrive and that fire had ceased in our sector. About three o'clock in the afternoon, a German lieutenant appeared. He was magnificently turned out and magnificently mounted and had an escort of two men. I met him about a hundred yards in front of our lines and he wished me to go back with him to meet the plenipotentiaries. I told him I could not leave my command and at first he made some demure, the idea of those with him being that a French officer should accompany the plenipotentiaries from the other side of the line. I assured him that there would be no firing in the sector, that the plenipotentiaries could cross the line in safety and that I would receive them at my post of command. This gentleman is an officer, he said to the men with him, and as an officer I can accept and trust his word. Five o'clock was the time fixed for the arrival of the delegates, but at that hour no one arrived, the mission, as is known, actually making their appearance considerably later in the evening, when they at once proceeded on their way. Interestingly, an alternative account exists of the arrival of the German delegation, they did not simply arrive at that infamous train carriage in a forest clearing at Compiègne, at a place which was later to take on such symbolic undertones. A member of the travelling ten-man German delegation later remembered the experience, which began with a tour of the devastated portions of the countryside to remind the Germans exactly what they had done. The motor tour with the French officers lasted 10 hours and it appears likely that it was intentionally prolonged in order to drive us all over the devastated province and prepare us by what we saw for what was shortly to be put before us in the way of hatred and revenge in the extremely severe armistice conditions. Now and again a Frenchman pointed silently to heaps of ruins or mentioned a name. Voila, Saint-Quentin. In the evening, wherever it was, a train stood ready for us. The windows of the carriages were curtained, and when we awoke next morning the train stood in the midst of a wood. We know now that the negotiations took place in the forest of Compiègne, but a week ago we knew nothing. Perhaps it was a measure of precaution, even for our sakes, that we were taken through no town. Perhaps acts of violence were feared on the part of the population, for the hatred for us among them is boundless. The wood was evidently barred by troops to all comers. There were no houses and no tents. On the railway line stood two trains, one occupied by Marshal Foch and his people, the other by ours. Here for three days we lived, worked and deliberated. This seems to be the modern form of such negotiations. The castles and fortresses of olden times have gone, even for such purposes. The train with its sleeping, drawing room and dining cars was very comfortable and we were provided with everything we wanted. The officer who had charge of the train had us supplied 
and the conduct of the numerous guards who stood around was beyond reproach. But all the hostility and the fullness of hate for our country that seems now to be cherished in France came to expression in the form of the negotiations, as well as in the terrible nature of the armistice conditions. Those of us who were soldiers wore uniforms and the Iron Cross. The introduction of the half-dozen French soldiers who conducted the negotiations with us in plenum greeted us by far the coldest. Foch, who showed himself only twice at the opening and at the end, gave us no word of the particular politeness that, in earlier times, distinguished the most chivalrous nation in the world, and his officers only gave us a little. We may be inclined to feel a little sympathy for the German delegation in this situation. Exactly how much chivalry could they expect following more than four years of ruinous total war pursued to the bitter end? We also may feel that the Germans were lucky to have gotten out of the conflict when they did. There were, indeed, no Allied soldiers marching towards Berlin, as these Germans had marched towards Belgium and the most prosperous parts of France. The Germans had ravaged other countries in their quest to end the war on top, but their lands had not been similarly ravaged. Indeed, the German delegation had no sense of what awaited them in this curious place. There were no miniature conferences between the most important military and civilian actors of those states. Instead, what the Germans got was a two-hour lecture in which the full extent of the punishing armistice terms were laid bare. As our German witness recalled, As each was to speak his own language and everything was translated, the reading of the conditions alone occupied nearly two hours. It was, moreover, a discovery when Foch answered that there would be no negotiations, and only dictated matter. Then we retired to our train, which stood on the other line. As we had been sent by the old government, and had certainly not been authorised to sign everything without conditions, we proceeded to divide the various points under three heads, military, naval and diplomatic, and discussed them separately with the members of the enemy commissions, which consisted only of officers. Military Germany, thus with two civilians, stood face to face with the now completely militarised France. The enemy maintained, in the persons of all his representatives, the same objective. Their coldness was mitigated by no single word that bordered upon the humane, as had marked our reception by the marshal. During our two days' proceedings, there was really no negotiation, and we could only try to obtain concessions on various conditions. For when the enemy demanded delivery of 160 U-boats, we could only point out the technical impossibility, as we had not 160 to give. This demand had to be changed into the formula, all U-boats. The chief point was that of food, and of this we were in a certain measure able to obtain assurance. In the meantime, in this lonely wood with its two railway trains, we were cut off from all intercourse with the outside world. Foch himself went off twice to Paris, and couriers were able in two hours to arrive with the papers. Thus it was possible for the enemy on Sunday, early, to hand us the Paris papers with the abdication of the Kaiser. We read no laughter, no triumph in their faces. Immediately before the close of the second and last plenary sitting, we placed before the enemy in the German language our protest against the treaty. But in the end, we had to sign. This was, of course, the crux of the issue. No matter how punitive the terms, the Germans had no choice other than to sign. The military situation was impossible. Their allies had all capitulated and sued for peace. And here we also see the psychological effect which the abdication of the Kaiser must have had on them. The entire world was falling apart for the Germans, and they had no other choice than to rely on the conditions of the Lansing Note, 
which established Woodrow Wilson's 14 points as the basis for the final peace settlement. These 14 points certainly hadn't made themselves felt in the armistice terms. This was the light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps the only light, that bad as these armistice terms were, they were only there to bring the conflict to an end, and a final peace settlement could conclusively end the war. At this peace conference, the German delegates believed they stood a chance in representing their interests to the other powers. Perhaps there was also some measure of misplaced optimism that the American president would not allow them to be dealt with too harshly for fear of aggravating the already frayed domestic situation in Germany. Revolution and unrest had ripped through Germany in the first week of November, bringing mutiny, civil unrest and fears of communist revolution to the fore. If Germany was to be saved from the abyss, if she was not to be lost to the tentacles of Bolshevism which reached out from Russia and threatened to strangle her, then surely it made sense to deal with her fairly and not to strip her of her pride or honour. She had lost the war and she had recently lost her Kaiser. She had lost her position of predominance and she had lost millions of men. Had she not suffered enough? If this had been the expectation, though, then the armistice terms had badly shaken it. They did not indicate that Germany would be permitted to survive in its current form. Rather, the Allies seemed to intend to strip Germany of her military power, to humiliate her, and to slap the butcher's bill on her alone. None of the 35 articles of the armistice, in a move which evidently stunned the Germans, were in any way negotiable. The surrender was not unconditional. Instead, there were 35 conditions all of which would have to be met before the war would be legally paused. It had also been unsettling to note the absence of any American military personnel from the trains at Compiègne. Did this mean Woodrow Wilson approved of such punitive terms and was content to let the Allies go at it? Signing on the dotted line did not by any means signify compliance with the terms. the Germans it was felt to mean a temporary defeat which some effective and driven diplomacy would be able to reverse come the actual final peace conference. The German delegation accepted of course that they would be permitted to participate without any restrictions. This after all was how peace conferences had always been arranged, from Westphalia to the Congress of Vienna. Even the defeated party was always allowed to have a seat at the big boy table. Otherwise how could anyone say that the terms agreed were legitimate? After having danced around the issue for some time, it is now time to deal with some of the terms of the armistice. Since we don't have time to list all 35 of the articles of the armistice, and it's not really necessary to do so anyway, we will instead gather together what I believe are the most important, to paint a picture of the general tone of the armistice and draw out its guiding principles. So let's begin. The armistice began with its clear purpose. Article 1 ordered the Cessation of operations by land and in the air six hours after the signature of the armistice. Article 2 ordered the immediate evacuation of invaded countries, Belgium, France, Alsace-Lorraine, Luxembourg, so ordered as to be completed within 14 days from the signature of the armistice. German troops, which have not left the above-mentioned territories within the period fixed, will become prisoners of war. Article 4 dealt with the Surrender in good condition by the German armies of the following war material. 5,000 guns, 25,000 machine guns, 1,700 airplanes. Article 5 called for the Evacuation by the German armies of the countries of the left bank of the Rhine. The countries of the left bank of the Rhine shall be administered by the local troops of occupation. The occupation of these territories will be carried out by Allied and United States garrisons holding the principal crossings of the Rhine. 
together with the bridgeheads at these points of a 35km radius on the right bank and by garrisons similarly holding the strategic points of the regions. The German government would be forced to pay for this occupation. Article 6 demanded that no individuals be evacuated or stolen back to Germany by the evacuating armies. Article 7 insisted that all roads, farms and infrastructure etc. be left intact, a demand which was not very well followed, as the retreating German armies effectively destroyed what French infrastructure they had already come across. Article 12 provided a further indication to the German delegation that the Allies were not content to let them cling to their gains. Article 12 read, All German troops at present in the territories which before belonged to Austria-Hungary, Romania, Turkey, shall withdraw immediately within the frontiers of Germany as they existed on August 1st, 1914. All German troops at present in the territories which before the war belonged to Russia shall likewise withdraw within the frontiers of Germany, defined as above, as soon as the Allies, taking into account the internal situation of these territories, shall decide that the time for this has come. In the event, the Allies would take a very long time to decide that the time for this has come, and the Germans would find themselves in a very strong position in the former Russian territories, a fact which we will examine the consequences of later on. Article 15 clarified this by simply demanding a renunciation of the treaties of Bucharest and Brest-Lotovsk and of the supplementary treaties. Concerning affairs at sea, the British had been keen to have a great deal of control over these terms, and as we have seen from House's lacklustre performance in the drafting of the Armistice Terms, David Lloyd George was only too delighted to sign off on such advantageous nods to Britain's naval position. It started innocently enough. There was, according to Article 20, to be an immediate cessation of all hostilities at sea and definite information to be given as to the location of movements of all German ships. Article 22 demanded the surrender to the Allies and United States of all submarines, including submarine cruisers and all mine-laying submarines, now existing, with their complete armament and equipment in ports which shall be specified by the Allies and United States. Article 23, furthering this point, added that German surface warships which shall be designated by the Allies and United States shall be immediately disarmed and thereafter interned in neutral ports, or in default of them in Allied ports, to be designated by the Allies and the United States. They will remain under the supervision of the Allies and of the United States, only caretakers being left on board. The following warships are designated by the Allies. Six battlecruisers, ten battleships, eight light cruisers, 50 destroyers of the most modern types. All other surface warships, including rivercraft, are to be concentrated in German naval bases to be designated by the Allies and the United States and are to be completely disarmed and classed under the supervision of the Allies and United States. The military armament of all ships of the auxiliary fleet shall be put on shore. All vessels designated to be interned shall be ready to leave the German ports seven days after the signing of the armistice. These terms resembled nothing less than the complete removal of Germany's naval arm from the equation. Even worse for the startled Germans, it was entirely possible that their seized vessels would be added to the Royal Navy's swollen cast of vessels. This was especially disconcerting because one of the major aims of the German delegation had been to bring the blockade of Germany to an end and to begin the process of importing foodstuffs into the country again so that starvation of so many citizens 
could be eased in time for the winter. Furthermore, hasty delivery of food would reduce the potency of the Bolsheviks, who continued to promise food from Russia to the starving German crowds. Incredibly, in a move which remains controversial to this day, Article 26 of the Armistice Terms read, The existing blockade conditions set up by the Allied and Associated Powers are to remain unchanged, and all German merchant ships found at sea are to remain liable to capture. The Allies and United States should give consideration to the provisioning of Germany during the armistice to the extent recognised as necessary. Finally, Article 34 stipulated that The duration of the armistice is to be 30 days, with option to extend. During this period, if its clauses are not carried into execution, the armistice may be denounced by one of the contracting parties, which must give 48 hours warning in advance. Article 35, meanwhile, declared that the Germans would have 72 hours to approve of the terms. The clock started ticking the moment that these stunning terms were placed before the German delegation on the 8th of November. They signed, as we know, at about 5.20am on the 11th of November 1918. So Germany would be effectively disarmed on land and at sea. She would be forced to pay an indemnity to be adjusted in the near future. She would have her land occupied and the starving of her people would continue unaffected according to the Allies' judgments. This was far, very far from what the Germans had expected, especially considering the vision of Woodrow Wilson, which had been meant to form the basis of the peace talks. How, the German delegation could ask, were the 14 points meant to form part of the final peace settlement if they were not even mentioned in the armistice. It wasn't a good sign, but if the Germans wished to progress to the next step of peace, they would have to sign anyway. Swallowing this bitter, unrelenting pill, at least, meant that the terms of a final peace treaty could be better than those of the armistice. Perhaps this had been a test by the Allies to assess exactly how desperate Germany was about peace, how serious it was about ending the war. At the very least, by signing and accepting this painful blow now, there was an expectation that, with the relevant powers gathering for a conference at some point in the near future, matters could not possibly get any worse. This was surely as bad as it could get. When the Germans actually had the permission to negotiate, then these terms would be forgotten, and face could be saved. So it was that for a variety of reasons, the armistice was developed and then signed by all involved. With this act, the greatest war in history had been brought to a technical end, but it was not yet finished. The armistice, for all of its weighted articles and declarations, represented just a pause button. If the war was to be conclusively ended, then it would require the contributions of more than merely the American president and the Germans. Having permitted Woodrow Wilson to establish the basis for a peace conference, based upon the 14 points, as I'm sure we all know by now, for goodness sake, it remained, for the other important elephants in the room, Britain and France, and Italy and Japan to a lesser extent, to prepare for that final peace conference, which was to be expected soon. The destination was to be Paris, and few European statesmen felt more dogmatically and justifiably that he deserved to have his way more than the French Premier, Georges Clemenceau. Clemenceau represented one of the most formidable statesmen France had ever produced, and it's high time that we were properly introduced to this man. Next time we will begin our analysis not only of this Frenchman, we will also place in proper context the French government and its people, and assess its angle during the post-war talks, following the most catastrophic disaster in men, money and materiel that France 
had ever experienced. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.